You're listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Let me read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then we'll talk about it. And it says this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. See, here we go. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Lord, help us. Uh, I had a friend... Uh, years ago, and she was in a conversation with a young woman, and in the midst of it, she told this woman that she knows a Navy SEAL. And when she told this young girl that, young girl got very excited. She was like, that's amazing. She was like, yeah, I know. And she was like, man, their training must be rigorous. I don't know how they do it. She's like, right, it is. They're elite. She's like, they would have to be. That's incredible. And she's like, yeah, I've actually been to their training facility and seen it, it's pretty remarkable to witness what they can accomplish. And the young woman said, I know, like I can't even fathom it. Like how do they get them to balance the beach ball on their nose for so long? (laughs) And my friend was like, wait, what? And she's like, oh, no, we're, we're both using the word seal but we're talking about different seals. <laughs> and why do I say that? Because I tell uh, uh, our young leaders all the time that when you're in a theological conversation, the most important question to ask is when you say that word, what do you mean? Because when someone says a word, they have all kinds of definitions and assumptions on the other side of that card. And if you're just debating words, but never get into the content, you can miscommunicate. And so we're talking today about marriage And I think for marriage, sometimes that's the way it goes, that when you talk about it, it elicits a different emotional response from people because they think about it very different ways because of what they saw modeled in their home, what they see in the culture. And so it elicits very different responses. And and the biblical language about marriage often elicits different responses true. And the truth is marriage has fallen on hard times both in the United States and globally. In 1970, 80% of Americans between the age 25 and 34 were married. 1970, 80% of 25 to 34 were married. In 2015, it's 40%. It's half of that. Uh, Mark Regneris is a research professor at the University of Texas, and he wrote a book on marriage, and he says the data on marriage remains solid. Marriage is by far the optimal context for child rearing, 
Married men and women accumulate more education and wealth, are more likely to own a home than unmarried adults, even similarly situated cohabiting or single adults. They're more likely to have jobs at all, even when controlling for other factors, such as race and education. Marriage also consolidates expenses like food, childcare, electricity, gas, and over the life course, drastically reduces the odds of becoming dependent on the state. And those are just the economic benefits. Recent high-quality research suggests that marriage is associated with higher life satisfaction, greater happiness, better mental and physical health, greater longevity, and even controlling for baseline health. Marriage is connected to higher levels of meaning and purpose in life, more positive relationships, less loneliness, and greater social support, even controlling for baseline financial status and education. And on and on he goes, and yet for many people, that really doesn't feel like the case. Uh, and so we're not going to get into all the particularities of all about marriage. That, that would require a whole series. And frankly, we'll probably do one. And yet I know as I say that, some of you are like, Ben, you're in D.C. Most everybody is single. Read the room, bro. Like, why are you even doing a sermon on marriage? Well, because even though less and less people are getting married, more and more getting married older, all the data supports. And then even for me, uh, so many of the conversations I have, people who hope and long for marriage or hope and long for the things that marriage is meant to bring, and yet there's a lot of fear because what they've seen in the institution has not been particularly encouraging. And so when we talk about it, I want to present possibilities here of what the beautiful picture of it is meant to be. And so I want to show what the Bible says about it. And if you're like, well, I'm not married, so this doesn't count for me. There's some guiding principles here that apply even if you're not married. Because contextually what we're talking about here is Peter is talking to people in the context of Rome where he's saying what happens when you come to faith in Jesus and the people you're knit closest together to don't share that allegiance? What do you do? And some of you are in families like that, that you've come to faith in Jesus and you have family members or friends or people you live with that don't understand it, don't respect it, and frankly think you're bizarre. What do you do now? And that's fear. And so Peter's been talking about that and he's gonna apply that in the context of the home. And as he does it, he's going to give us a, a couple things. I'll just give you the points out front. He's gonna talk to wives and tell them to excel at higher conduct from a higher calling. He's gonna tell them to display a deeper beauty from a deep, deeper place. And then he's going to tell husbands to use their power to elevate and not to denigrate. Now, as soon as I say that, he talks to wives more, and I'll explain why in a minute. And I know when he does that, for some of us in here, uh, questions, qualifiers are going to come leaping up. Like, well, what about, what are you doing? And I just want to encourage you, valid, but wait, please. Let, let me finish the presentation. And uh, then if I skip your question, uh, we can talk about it afterwards outside. But... Uh, let me get through it, and I think we'll see, hopefully, some balance to the soul. But the first thing he brings up is talking to women that we're meant to excel at a higher conduct from a higher calling. And you see it in verse 1. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, let me stop there. Let me read this. Uh, Rise of Christianity uh, is a book by Rodney Stark, and he says this about women in the church. Amidst contemporary denunciations of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, it's easily forgotten that the early church was so especially attractive to women that in 370 AD, the emperor Valentinian issued a written order to Pope Damascus I requiring Christian missionaries stop calling at the homes of pagan women. Christianity was unusually appealing to women because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large, which is true. Uh, 
men greatly outnumbered women in the Greco-Roman world. And that was because of tampering. Uh, uh, young baby girls were often discarded. And so you had way more men than women. And so what happened is women were seen as a, a scarce commodity. And so they were married off in Rome, often as young as 11 or 10. That was common in the pagan culture, not in Christian culture. And in that, there was also rampant prostitution, the using of women without having to care about their emotional or financial needs. And yet in Christianity, something else happened where the Bible says, no, those women have dignity in the image of God and you're meant to love them, not just their bodies to use, but their whole life and care for them. And, and as Peter says, they are co-heirs in the grace of life. And so you saw a dignity afforded to women and they married later, had greater choice in it. And so women saw they thrive in the Christian culture. And it was so attractive to women that one of the detractors of Christianity, Celsus, who wrote a paper trying to discredit Christianity, it shows you a bit of the bias of Roman culture. One of his best arguments against Christians, he said, look at who they attract, women. And that was like his drop the mic argument. And the reality is it's a badge of honor that what some today would want to see as uh, enslaving or oppressive, women who this was being written to saw it as empowering, dignity. And I think you'll see it in a minute. So it says in verse one, likewise, or in the same way, as what? And we gotta remember, we've been in a, a subsection in the letter where Peter's been saying who you are because of what Christ has done. And he said in 1 Peter chapter two, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he's telling us you have a new identity and that brings new activity. You are the people of God, meant to proclaim God to a broken and lost world. And then he says a few verses later, so keep your conduct among the ethnos, among the Gentiles, honorable. So even if they slander you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God. So he says, God's made you something else. And as the people of God, you proclaim him. And so that proclamation looks like living an honorable life among them. So they'll glorify the God that saved you. And then under that, then he begins to progress into the next verse, 13a, where he says, so be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So for the Lord's sake, meaning to display his character and display his grace and to contribute his message, serve people in the wider context and submit to the existing social structures. So he says, your allegiance to Jesus does not mean you overthrow existing social structures. Rather, you live a supernatural life within existing social structure. And you transform the structure by transforming people by displaying a transformed life. So he talked about being subject to the government, that you may have people who lead you in the government that, that you don't like, but, but government provides structure to society. So you submit to it, not out of fear of them. He says, you fear God alone and you obey God. But as part of that, for the sake of their souls, you serve them. You don't be afraid of them, but you serve them for the Lord's sake. And then he said, you do that with your employer relationship. That was the last one we talked about. And he's getting to these major social structures, into government structure, into commerce and at work. And now he gets into the home. And so he looks at the wife and he says, hey, wives, be subject to your husbands. But then look at the, the reason why. So that even if some do not obey the word or disobey the word or reject the message, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So he tells them to, to be subject, but look at why that motivation. He says, it's so that they may be one. 
And so he's talking about a situation here where women were married and they were coming to faith in Jesus and their husbands did not have faith. And he says, hey, you wanna step into a way of relating to them that opens up the possibility of them coming to a saving faith in Jesus. And so their conversion is my motivation. So this is a very specific group. There are broader marriage texts in other places in the Bible. We've taught them and shall teach them again. But in here, he's talking to a specific subset that was rampant, women coming to faith and their husbands weren't of faith. And he addresses them and says, hey, you be subject. Now, I want, you to po- I want to point out to you, that was radical right there. Because if you look at Greco-Roman texts about the home, the wife is never addressed. The man is told what to do with his house. And here Peter turns to the women as moral agents and says, you make a decision for the Lord's sake, not out of fear of this guy, to, to, to subject yourself. There's never a text in the Bible to tell men to sub- subject women. There's never a text in the Bible to tell any human to make any person submit, actually. And yet he's looking at the woman as a moral agent and say, you make a decision to serve that man. And so as addressing that, it would have been terrifying because I don't have time to read them all, but in Roman culture, it was very common that, that a man led the house. And so everyone in the house had to worship his gods and only be friends with his friends. And here, as you look through Peter, he's telling this, these women, no, you worship Jesus and you gather with his community. So as this pagan man is watching that happen, now he's getting nervous. That was a scary thing because he could lose social standing, which would exclude him from political office and it could cost him financially. And so to see you do that is a terrifying thing. And so he says, hey, so there's an area they'll understand. You make a decision, you're not owned by him, you fear God alone. And that reverence and respect there is is fear and the word uh, uh, for holy. So it's not talking about revere the husband or be pure to the husband. It's talking about a reverence and holiness for God. All through the text, fear has been for God alone. He says, so your husband's gonna watch you fear God alone and be holy unto him. He's gonna watch your life begin to change. And as he watches your life change and this allegiance come to someone outside of him, it's gonna scare him. It's gonna make him nervous. He's not gonna understand it. So as you do that, hey, you step in and you serve him. You care for him because that's something he will understand. Now, does that mean you do everything he wants you to do? No. And all through the Bible, you have people that serve Jesus, that, that their commitment to God is both a guideline and a guardrail to what behavior is appropriate. And you'll see that later in this text, but you'll see it in places like Joseph in Egypt. I'm gonna serve in this house of Potiphar, but when his wife says, sleep with me, I'm gonna say, no, I don't submit to immorality. So he's not talking to these wives and saying, do anything your husband say to do, but he's saying, hey, they understand uh, that you have an opportunity that, that your faith is gonna scare them. But as you begin to exercise that faith by caring for them, that will encourage them. And, and the word submit means to willfully um, have an inclination to receive and affirm the leadership of that man. Uh, to have an inclination, and I like that word because it doesn't mean you do whatever they say. That will come later in the text. Have an inclination to receive and affirm his initiation for your good. And as I talk to a lot of you single women, it is often your greatest frustration that you wish men initiated more. Asking dates, doing almost anything. Just wish men would initiate more. And so here, what he's saying to this wife is when your husband initiates something good, affirm that. Uh, Respond positively to that. Don't just shame him for all the ways he's failing. When you see good, affirm that. Celebrate that move towards that. That's what this word means, that I'm going to move towards him in a way he understands, that I'm going to, I'm going to look for things to celebrate that he's doing. And so as I really 
willingly serve him and celebrate the good, he's gonna see she's doing this even when I don't deserve it. And she's doing it for my soul, not, not out of fear of me. She's not afraid of me at all. She's making decisions that are outside of the social norm in Roman context. And yet that, that different allegiance hasn't pulled her away from me. It's not making her judge me. It's not making her condemn me. It's making her love me more. And suddenly what was repelling me is now alluring me. That her allegiance to Jesus has made her even more loving of me. That's something remarkable. And I've seen that happen in a lot of lives. John Perkins, an incredible civil rights leader and inspirational figure for me. Uh, John Perkins was not a believer when he left Mississippi and moved to California, but understood his kids needed community, put them in a church, let them go to Sunday school. But then he watched his children change. And he watched everything about them get get better and good. And he watched even how they responded to him as good. And they didn't shame him like, well, you're not a church dad. You know, there wasn't that. They just watched. My kids are changing as a response to this different allegiance. And that led him to the church. And he came to faith and became a powerful leader uh, of the people of Jesus in racial reconciliation. That's how that happens. Uh, I led a college ministry for years, and I've told many of you about this, that people who were in college came to faith in Christ, and they would come to me and say, I was confused. I came to faith in Christ in college, and then I went home and told my parents, uh, you're sinners, and uh, you need to repent, and, uh, and it didn't go well. And I'm confused because I uh, maybe quoted the wrong verses, and I'm like, no, stuff's up. Um, <laughs> they've seen all of you. They've had to live with you for 20 years. And so if you suddenly come and start preaching to them, you have no standing. Stop, stop talking. Before they hear it, they need to see it. So the next time you go home, don't preach a word. Just do the dishes without being asked. Fold the laundry, mow the lawn, and your dad will believe there's a God in heaven (laughs) without you saying a word because he'll see your reverent conduct and say, what on earth are you doing? And that will open him up to the possibility of being one because they've seen what God's done in your world. So what I encourage people to do is excel at everything you can celebrate in that person's life. And this is where it extends beyond marriage. For some of you, you have non-believing family members and you want them to know Jesus and you keep inviting them to church and they don't wanna go to church because when they hear the word church, they think all these negative thoughts. So stop inviting them to church. You see things in their life you can celebrate and celebrate those things. Uh, You find places of interest for theirs and you lean into that place of interest because that will express love to them. And it's interesting in Peter, he doesn't really unpack what submit to your own husband means. Uh, He's, there's not, here's the seven things you do because it's not to all men, it's to your husband. Get to know that guy, see what communicates love and respect to him and do those things. And as you do those things in the name of Jesus, it, it will impact him. And I promise you, if if you have a loved one that is resistant to your faith, if they see the outworking of your faith become tangible expressions of love to them, they will take your faith more seriously. I've seen it. I remember I had a pastor friend say that to me, live in a way that forces people to take your God seriously. And I had a community of young believers uh, that I got to lead. They went to Prague together. And while they were in Prague, they made friends with a guy. And uh, he just kept saying, I've never been around a community like this. I've never been around people like this. Y'all are so different. This is crazy. And they said, we're Christians. And he was like, well, I'm an atheist. And I think Christianity is stupid. And I think it's a mythology and ridiculous. But then over time, at the end, uh, 
he was like, but I just, I don't even understand the way you love each other and the way you love me. And they said, well, man, we'd love to pray for you before we leave. And he was like, well, I don't think there's a God. And they were like, well, it's okay. You can just stand there and not believe in God. Do you mind if we pray for you? And he's like, no. And by the end, he was weeping because he said, something profound and powerful is happening in my midst because of the way you loved me. And it forced him to take God seriously. Maybe what I've dismissed has some value because I'm watching it happen in your life. Do you see that? And here he's looking at these women and saying, don't jump out of this relationship, which incidentally, let me pause here and say, and don't jump into it either, ladies. Don't say, well, that's what I need to do. I need to serve my pagan boyfriend and one day win him to Christ. No, no. There's a lot of verses that say, no, you don't jump into a bad situation, right? It's if you're in it, don't jump out. But love, love him well. And uh, there's more we can say about that, but I got to keep rolling. So uh, I'm going to love and what's transferable, I'm gonna celebrate. I'm gonna excel at familiar values in a way that forces them to take God seriously. And then he moves on and tells them and display a deeper beauty from a deeper place. And so that's where he says uh, in verse three, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. Now, this is not a prohibition on braiding your hair or on golden jewelry. You don't need to be like, okay, this is that kind of church. Now, uh, it's interesting because I don't know why the ESV changes the word choice. It messes up the flow. He says, don't let your adorning it be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of jewelry, the wearing of clothes. So when you say it that way, it's not a prohibition to braid your hair, put on jewelry any more than it's a prohibition to put on clothes. By all means, put some clothes on. <laughs> what he's talking about here is, is emphasis. Do not make your adornment or your beauty primarily physical. So he's not saying you can't have beautiful physical adornment. The Bible actually praises that in other places. He's saying, don't make that your point of emphasis. So by all means, ladies, bathe, brush your teeth, do all the things you need to do. But he's saying to you, where are you investing more of your energy to develop yourself? Is it on your skin or is it in your heart? Because he says in verse four, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That's what's valuable. Proverbs 31 says that charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. That means it's fleeting. It will go away. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so the emphasis here is saying for you as you're developing, don't just work on your cosmetics and not work on your character. Don't just work on your skin and miss working on your soul. He says, but you let God develop you internally because that is what God values and is even more attractive, which is true. There was a study done uh, at a British university that found as they studied thousands of men that regardless of attractiveness or body size, men preferred women who had a positive personality traits like kindness and confidence, which is true. I know for me, and it's always very awkward to say this, I had some friends in high school and in college that were not the most attractive girls in our group, right? I noticed the word choice. I didn't say they were ugly, they weren't. They just weren't the most attractive. If one had to rate, they weren't in the number one spot. But they got asked out so much more. And it was because they were so kind. And I watched that happen over and over in my life, that these women that were kind it was attractive 
to men and they wanted to be around them, even if they didn't understand it. And I remember at one job I had, so many guys were asking out these girls. It was like some of her brothers in Christ had to be a bodyguard. I mean, these guys were so confused, like, I love you. And you're like, stop, 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 stop. You're just take it easy, bro. You don't even know her name. But uh, they just saw how kind she was. And uh, that's true of women and men. Uh, Proverbs says that, that what's attractive and desirable in a man is his kindness. We spend a lot of money on our skin, Groupon. Conducted a survey in 2017 that says uh, women in the U.S. routinely spend $3,756 a year on their appearance, a quarter of that on the face alone. Uh, Men spend actually not much less, oddly enough. Uh, and according to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, nearly $16.7 billion was spent on cosmetic procedures in 2020. $16 billion in 2020 alone. I'm not judging you if you buy cosmetics or had plastic surgery. I don't really care. My point is, do you spend more time in the morning getting your face ready than spending getting your soul ready? And I just want to encourage you, as you wake up in the morning, Get your face ready, but get your soul ready. And it's the same with men. Don't, do you spend more time in the gym sculpting your abs than you do in the Word of God sculpting your character? That's the problem. And if you look in the Old Testament, Solomon was a beautiful man, head and shoulders taller than all the rest, and deeply insecure and dangerous. Absalom was a beautiful man, long flowing locks, and a complete mess. And David was ruddy. Handsome, where Saul and Absalom were tens. David was maybe a solid eight, but he had character. And you want to marry that guy. You want to marry that girl. So have a deeper beauty from a deeper place. And then he says, how is that manifested? With a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, again, some people get offended by that. Those are not uniquely feminine qualities. Those are actually uh, advocated for women and men throughout the Bible. What he's saying here, and maybe this sounds better to modern ears, uh, Edwin Friedman coined the term non-anxious presence. That as he was ministering to families in New York, he found that uh, many families that had so much conflict, he said there was always a family member that was sort of a non-anxious presence, that they were gentle with people and they were quiet. They They didn't get rattled. And he said, I noticed if I leaned into that family member, they had the resources to help everyone else be at peace. And he's saying, Christian, when you enter into your social circle, your home where you live with your roommates or your home where you live with your family, he said, when you enter that, we should be the people of peace if we know the Prince of Peace. So we should have a spirit that's gentle, not harsh. And that's quiet. That's like still waters because we know God is in control. And so we should be the most non-anxious presence in the room. And when people feel that, there's power to that. They don't even understand. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I had a, these group of students that I would minister to and unprompted by me or any adult leader, they decided we need to pray for our high school. We don't need to preach to our high school. We need to pray for our high school. So they would get up before school and pray at this house. And they kept inviting me, but I didn't want to go because it was like 6 a.m. and I was a college student. Waking up before the crack of noon felt weird. And so I was like, I'm not going to your prayer group. And then I would say stupid stuff like, I'll pray for you later, like retroactively because God's outside of time and you know, whatever. I just didn't want to wake up. But after a while, I started to feel bad. Like as their minister, I should at least show up once. And I remember I showed up once and there was a little group of like five or six of them that had been doing this. And when I showed up, they filled this whole house. They had to move all the furniture to the walls because it was this army of high school kids without prompting 
seeking the Lord on behalf of their friends. And it was so big at that point that they would break into these smaller groups to pray. And I remember one of them was this girl I used to call armrest because she's about this high and her, your arm could just fit very conveniently on her head. And uh, she loved it. But, um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> she was sitting there and she was like, hey guys, do you remember how last week I was praying about the fact that I hadn't shared my faith in Jesus with anyone uh, for like two weeks? And I remember she said that I was like, whoa, that was your prayer request? Like most people, when you take prayer requests, you're like, oh, I got an uncle once that had a cold. Like you just get some distance. I'm like, she's talking about her own evangelistic endeavors. She's like, you remember how I asked you guys to pray for that? She said, well, I was sitting in class the other day and a girl next to me in class leaned over and said, how do you do it? She was like, what? And she was like, the finals are coming and we're all freaking out. Everyone's freaking out and you don't. She said, you just seem to be at peace and I don't understand it. And she said in that moment, the girl was like, well, it's my faith. I, I pray, I trust God with my life. And if you want me to tell you about it, I'll tell you about it. I'll walk you to your next class. And the girl said, okay. She'd memorized a bunch of Bible verses. So she just told her about how every human being is made in the image of God and has beauty and dignity, but everyone's broken because of sin. Every single person like sheep has wandered and gone astray, but Jesus came like a good shepherd to come get us, to lay his life down for us. He bled out and died for our sin, rose for our redemption. And you put your faith in him, it changes you. And you know that the heavens smile on me. God loves me. I'm accepted, not because of what I've done, in spite of what I've done. He loves me. And, and it, she, she shared that message. She said, so I told her about it. And, and uh, she put her faith in Jesus and here she is. And it was the girl next to her in the circle. And she's like, hey guys, so glad to be here. And I was like, ah, what? And I remember sitting there and I'm like, man, shame on me for not praying more. And shame on us if we don't pray with that kind of confidence about what God can do in this city. But what got that girl to take her God seriously? That she was a non-anxious presence. That she had a gentle and quiet spirit. Uh, your roommates will not be impressed by your allegiance to the Prince of Peace if you live a life of stress. And so a gentle and quiet spirit is of great value. And here you see it can make a difference in a home. And uh, we gotta move faster, I apologize. But in verse five and six, he, he asks the question, who are your role models? And he points to uh, the OJ, the original Jew, Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, were the father and mother of our faith. And he said, look at Sarah. And, and what's funny about it is he says, look at Sarah. She called Abraham Lord, which is funny because, uh, I mean, you read about Abraham and story, Sarah's life, like they had some conflict and sparks flew and you're like, well, okay. But uh, the text he quotes there, Abraham's actually not even in the room. She's talking about him. And there was a moment where she was talking about him and the way she talked about him had respect, uh, didn't discredit him. And let me tell you, ladies, when you do get married, if you're not married or if you are married, no one has the power to wound a husband more than you. And you can, uh, you can destroy his soul with a word. And uh, for her to make the choice to speak honorably about him is precious in the sight of God. And she did that. And he said, who are your role models? If your standard of beauty is just whoever's on your Instagram, that's not special. And it's certainly not supernatural. That your standard of beauty should be people who have gentle and quiet spirits, like Macrina, who's saving the lives of young women in Jesus' name. You, you need mentors like that like Perpetua, whose gentleness and quietness as she was martyred brought a generation of Romans to faith because they saw something different in her 
You need that kind of spirit. That's what he's advocating here. And he says, and you're her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening, which is a weird verse because frightening things by definition are things you're afraid of. What's he saying? Well, the do good there is he's not just saying do things your husband likes. He's gonna say later, if you suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed, have no fear. So the good he's saying there is you obey the Lord. You follow the Lord and know that as you do that, as you worship him and not your husband's God, as you gather with the community and not his community, that's gonna be scary, but don't be scared. You do good and trust the Lord and don't fear what's frightening. Now, is he advocating abuse there? No, some people read passages that and they're like, oh, so do you stay in an abusive relationship? No. Again, you look at Joseph with Potiphar's wife. She wanted to abuse him sexually. He said, no, I won't do it. And he went to jail for that. Uh, you see Tamar, as Amnon said, I wanna sleep with you. She said, don't do this wicked thing. And so can you be in a position where you don't have power and say, hey, I, I'm gonna honor you, but I fear the Lord. And so my fearing of the Lord is a guideline for me. So I wanna serve you, but it's a guardrail, but that place I will not go. That's exactly true. And if you're in a relationship that's dangerous, where you're being hurt, God doesn't obligate you to be there. And yet, if you do not have a family coming around you biologically, you have a spiritual family that's meant to. And we're here to help support you and love you. That's how the church is meant to work. And so you do what's right and you trust the Lord. And if you have to, you disobey civilly. Now, let's get on to husbands. Y'all still with me? Like, you feel good about that? Okay, all right such a weird way to come back from vacation, but the husbands, he says less. Why? Because if you notice, Peter has a very specific goal in his text. Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians and talks about household codes, he's just talking generally. Peter's talking about people who are not in the power dynamic in a relationship. So he doesn't tell governors how to act. There probably weren't any governors. He said, here's how you act when you're under a governor. He tells people who you're under an employer. Here's how you ask. And he talks to the wife. You're outside the power curve in Roman culture. Here's how you act in that dynamic. And yet he can't leave the home without addressing the husband. That he switches it and said, no, but here I got to talk to these guys too. And he begins to speak to them. And he says to them, you have power. Use that power to elevate, not denigrate, right? Why less verses on the men? They were less at risk. And his book was, is speaking, if you read all of 1 Peter in one sitting, which you can easily do, uh, you see he's talking to people who are in a position of lacking power and facing persecution. And yet here he looks at the man and says, but I need to talk to you. Likewise, in the same way that the wife out of her fear of the Lord serves people, in the same way, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, for some people, they hear that and they sound, it, it sounds like a pat on the head to them. Live with her in an understanding way. Like, just try to understand her. But, but the wording there is live with her according to knowledge. It's an invitation there to know your wife. Uh, one commentator said it this way, living with a woman is not merely physical function, but something a man must know how to do, or I would say must learn how to do. And he's saying here, be an active learner. You don't have to know all women. You don't have to study women, but you have to know that woman and know what she's like. Know what she's like. Why? He says, showing honor. So study that woman to understand what shows her honor. That, that word honor is the word value or respect. So he's telling the men, hey, when you see that woman, you study her, you get to know her. And as you do that, what you're trying to discern is things to do and say that communicate to her honor and value and privilege and respect. That's the call of a man, that you use your energy 
to serve her. Uh, I don't have to know all women, but I do need to know Donna. And as I've learned Donna, there's things she likes and things she doesn't. I remember I cooked her breakfast once in bed because I thought women like that kind of thing. And I brought it to her and her response was, I like cooking breakfast. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, great, great. Well, then I'll stop. <laughs> I like grilling. I used to grill all the time because that's what I understood men did. When we cook things, it's outside. And uh, uh, I was frankly good at it. My roommates in college would bring their girlfriends over and secretly ask me to grill outside and they would bring it in and take credit for it because they couldn't grill worth a darn, but they could win over a woman with my grilling skills. <laughs> However, as we had children, uh, Donna would be with the kids all day long and I'd come home from work and I, I realized the way to love her is not to go like, I'll be at the grill. The way to love her is she said, I like grilling. I'm like, oh, okay. I think what you like is a break from our children. No offense, Spiro, I'm just saying. <laughs> she loves you, just sometimes, um, just need to change it up. And so I realized, and I don't get to be with them for a lot of the day. And so we realized, well, here's our dynamic. When I come home, I wanna be with the kids. And she goes out and grills. And that doesn't meet some of the stereotypical norms of a bygone day in America, but who cares? It's not a biblical standard. Like, it's, it's I gotta know her, know what she cares about. Donna loves to build things. I don't. So when we go to Home Depot, this has happened to me many times. They're like, hey, Donna, hey, Donna, hey, Donna. They're like, oh, is this your husband? And I'm like, mm -hmm, yeah, right here. And guess what? I don't care. I don't care what y'all do. I read books. Frankly, I'm good at it. And uh, I don't build things. She does. So there's ways that we interact with each other that look very stereotypically husband and wife. Fine with that. I like to hunt such and such. Uh, there are ways that aren't at all. And frankly, I don't care. What I care about is, I need to know her to honor her. You see, that's, that's the call to men in this passage. Let me tell you something, that's where the revolution breaks out because no one talked like that until the people of Jesus. This is a revolutionary passage and it's why women flocked to a church in the early century. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they're heirs with you of the grace of life. So he gives them two qualifiers for why you honor them. One is as a weaker vessel. And again, here we go. Weaker vessel, what does that mean? It's, it's not weaker sex. The, the word vessel is, uh, it's used of a physical body and of pottery. That, 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 that vessel is weaker. And what he's talking about there would not have been controversial in the day. Everyone understood that, particularly as work was primarily physical. Women's physical bodies, by and large, are not as strong as men's physical bodies. That's changed in the work dynamic with technology about how you can expand uh, your work operations. Read Proverbs 31. She's buying and selling real estate, etc. But when you get out into the world, men are physically bigger and stronger than women. Uh, Princeton did a study on gender differences in strength and found that absolute total body strength of women has been reported as being roughly 67% that of men. Uh, the men's world record bench press is over 1,300 pounds. Uh, the women's world record bench press is less than half. Uh, Tokyo, 2020, uh, Olympic lifting. The men's gold in the highest weight class, that man lifted over 1,000 pounds. Uh, the women's was around 700. So if you look at men, they can lift more. And uh, typically in athletic arenas, 
run faster and all kinds of stuff. They have stronger physical bodies, right? And yet it's interesting. He looks at that and he says, don't use that power to dominate. That was normal in the culture. Well, then might makes, might makes right. And so I'm strong so I can be selfish and you just got to deal with it. But Peter says, show her honor as the weaker vessel. Don't use your strength to, to dominate. Use your strength to elevate. Don't use your strength to be selfish. Use your strength to serve. And it's a total shift in dynamic. And in that, he's not saying that men are of more value. Notice he follows by saying she is a co-heir in the grace of life. You are both heirs of the life given by God in Jesus. So he's saying she is an equal with you. He's echoing Genesis that male and female made in the image of God. But he says, God has made you, but he's made you different. Understand that difference. And don't you dare see that as her being less than. That was common in the culture. No, she's a co-heir, but understand she's built differently. And as you understand she's built differently, you don't denigrate her because of her differences. You actually elevate her because of her differences. Uh, I use the illustration all the time that uh, my iPad is a more delicate vessel than my shovel. So I don't use my iPad to dig a trench. Uh, if my kids drop a shovel in our garage, I don't care. If they drop my iPad, I care much. <laughs> the shovel is not worth more than the iPad. The iPad's more delicate. But delicate's not a value statement. Do you understand that? And so he's not making a value statement there. He's saying in a culture that was dominated by uh, a physical society, hey, don't use that strength to subjugate. Use that strength to serve. And then he says, and if you don't, you gotta deal with her daddy so that your prayers may not be hindered. He says, God likes her a lot. And if you mistreat her, you answer to me. And I don't want to hear from you if you're unkind to her. And so he calls the men in a society-shattering way. You love her. You honor her. You serve her. That would have been so strange in Rome. And yet as women had dignity, and were happier, and their children flourished. First women, and children, and men, they came to the sanctuary of the church from the brokenness of society, because they saw you're backwards and strange and happier and healthier. And our modeling of a transformed life transformed a culture, and that's what we're meant to do. Do you see it? That's how the Christian's meant to act. Now, let me say this as we close. This dynamic only really works when both people play. And so Peter's acknowledging women who are not in the ideal situation. Hey, you may be married to a man who's, who doesn't share your faith. Don't enter that because you want to run together. But if you're in it, he says, the way Paul said it, if he's content to stay, then don't leave. Stay in there in your embodiment of your faith let God use that to hopefully save their soul. It's not, you're not responsible to save them, but as you embody a transformed life, God may use that as an impetus and catalyst to transform theirs. However, as you do that, know that you're in a system that doesn't really work well. Because if, if you're submitting and he's not serving, if you're honoring, but he's not respecting, then it's like playing tennis with someone who never hits the ball back. It doesn't look like a compelling game. So don't get yourself in that game. But as you enter into marriage, ladies, as you enter in, if you make your decision, I'm not gonna diminish this man. I'm not gonna see his masculinity as a challenge or a threat. I'm gonna find ways to serve him and serve him. I'm gonna find ways to celebrate him and celebrate him. Language like that, will, people will recoil in the culture. 
But as you do that, if you're in Christ, then he knows my job is to find ways to honor her and to honor her. Find ways to respect her and respect her. Find ways to elevate her and use my power to help her win. I'm gonna do that. And as the church sees that, as the world sees that, wow, you're risking yourself by serving him. Wow, you're risking yourself by serving her. But the fact that you're both risking is synergistic and elevates both? That's crazy. That's beautiful. It's scary and it's wonderful. And as people see a, a marriage like that, they get to see a picture of how God loves the church. That's what Paul told the Ephesians. That when we serve God and we love him and we celebrate him and we worship him, he blesses us and cares for us and, and people get to see how Jesus loves his bride. Jesus sacrificed his life to, to the last drop of blood. And the church joyfully responds to a leader like that. And as, as Jesus serves and the church serves in response, that's a beautiful thing. It's why we're here. And as your marriage is a picture of that, the world gets to see a picture of the love of God for his people. And let me tell you something. Again, we might do a whole marriage series, folks. I'm kind of feeling it. I don't know yet. But <laughs> as I look at people who are wrestling with it in the culture, you just see so many articles nowadays of people lamenting the state of romantic relationships because sex is cheap, but intimacy is so hard and expensive and difficult to find. And yet within the church of Jesus Christ and within a God-honoring marriage, we get to picture a radical self-donation of not just body, but soul and serve one another. And as we do that, as we are the people of God's prized possession, we proclaim the excellencies of him who's calling people out of darkness into his marvelous light. So whether you're in a romantic relationship or not, the relationship you need to get right first is a relationship with God. And he wasn't waiting on you. He came first. And Jesus Christ arrived on the scene to live the perfect life you could not and die the death you deserved so that you might have life and grace in him. Jesus is not asking you to do what he did not do for you. He served you to the point of death. And now he's saying, follow me and let's serve along with me for their good. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.